0: Hello, and welcome to the Estate Planners Podcast. My name is Anthony Brinkman, and this is the place for will writers, estate planners, and solicitors that are interested in learning the tips, tools, and technicalities to best help their clients. This is episode 12, entitled Barrett vs. Bem. The case of Barrett v. Bem and others, 2012, carries a number of lessons that I think we can learn from as estate planners. Here are the facts of the case. At Hammersmith Hospital on the 11th of January 2004, the testator Martin Lavin was visited by his sister Anne Liston and Anne's daughter Honora. He told them that he'd like to make a will and as a former legal secretary, Honora wrote out a simple document in her own handwriting. It left his entire estate to his sister, Anne Liston, and appointed her as executor. Mr Lavin read the will and approved of its contents. Although physically very unwell, he remained mentally capable. The will was signed and was witnessed by staff nurse Harris and staff nurse Hawadi. A few hours later, Mr Lavin died. In June of that year, Anne Liston obtained probate, but she herself passed away in November 2004. Anne's daughter, Honora Bem, was appointed as her executor. One rather important fact to note here is that Mr Lavin had seven surviving sisters. In May of 2007, one of those sisters, who would stand to inherit on the grounds of intestacy, contested the will. She herself died before the matter was concluded and was replaced by her son, Michael Barrett. Expert evidence was presented that stated the possibility of the signature on the will was not that of Martin Lavin and that the claim that he had signed the will himself could be, quote, realistically disregarded, end quote. At trial, one of the two staff nurses, Nurse Hawardi, could not be traced. The other witness, Staff Nurse Harris, gave evidence along with Honora that the deceased had signed the will himself unaided. The judge concluded, mainly from the evidence of the handwriting expert, Mr Robert Radley, that Mr Lavin had not signed the will himself and therefore the will failed to comply with Section 9A of the Wills Act 1837. That Section 9A starts with the following. Quote, "'No will shall be valid unless it is in writing and signed by the testator "'or by some other person in his presence and by his direction.' Quote. "'Following this first trial, the second witness, Nurse Hawadi, was then tracked down. "'Her recollection had been that either Anne Leston or Honora Bem "'had held Martin's hand whilst he signed the will.' she was completely certain that the pen was in his hand when he signed the will. This fresh evidence opened a retrial in 2010. At this trial, Honora and Nurse Harris changed their evidence to state that Anne had held Martin's hand to stop it from shaking too much. So to be clear, they had stated that she had held his hand, not the pen. On the other side of the case, the same handwriting expert, in addition to now a second, called Audrey Giles, concluded that the signature on the will could not have been made in this way. I'd actually invite you to obtain a copy of the will in question. As I'm sure you know, a will is a matter of public record, and is easily obtained from the probate records. I'd describe the signature as being quite confidently written. It's... Fluid and it includes a couple of flourishes on the L of the name Lavin. The L and the A and the V are all joined without any interruption, as are the letters I and N. In his evidence, Mr Radley explained that guided hand signatures are generally poorly written. There's an awkwardness for both the signer and the guider, and in this particular case, Mr Lavin had been propped up in bed with medical apparatus around him which wouldn't have helped. Guided hand signatures typically display signs of false starts, stopping and starting, and often an upward slope to their signature can be seen. None of these characteristics can be seen on the will in question. Given this evidence and the additional cross-examination of Honora, the judge concluded that Anne must in fact have signed the will herself. He indicated that there was no evidence to suggest that Martin had directed Anne to sign on his behalf, but that in his actions, he'd implicitly directed her to do so. On this basis, he actually reversed his earlier decision and concluded that the will was valid. What he said was, quote, The act of attempting to sign personally and failing to do so, having expressly said he wanted to make a will and expressly approved its contents, together with allowing Anne to sign on his behalf, can and should be taken as a direction by conduct to Anne to sign the will in those terms and on his behalf. End quote. However, the story doesn't end there. The case went on to appeal on two grounds. Number one, that the facts found by the judge did not amount in law to a direction by the deceased, and two, that public policy consideration should render the will invalid, as the Wills Act 1837 states in section 15, that a beneficiary cannot be a witness, and in this case, a beneficiary, in fact the only beneficiary, had signed on behalf of the testator, and the flavour or the intention of section 15 should be applied to this situation. A key word in this second appeal is the word direction again section 9 of the wills act states that a will can be signed quote by some other person in his presence and by his direction end quote so what constitutes his direction the second appeal judge found relatively little in the way of authority on this point there were a small number of cases cited none of which were conclusive on the matter. An interesting excerpt from one of those cases reads that it is not necessary that the acknowledgement should be in any particular form, nor in any particular words, nor in words at all. It is enough if the conduct of the person on the occasion amounts to an acknowledgement. However, the context of this was relevant more to an acknowledgement than it was to actual direction. The conclusion of this second appeal was that Anne had indeed stepped in to sign the will on Martin's behalf, but that there was insufficient evidence of a positive direction from Martin, only a passive acquiescence to her signing for him. Therefore, they held that the will was invalid on the first ground for appeal. The second ground for appeal was not therefore taken up, if you recall, that second ground was on the matter of public policy to apply the same principle of a beneficiary not being a witness to apply to a beneficiary not signing on behalf of the testator. However, Judge Lewison did state that, quote, it is plainly undesirable that beneficiaries should be permitted to execute a will in their own favour in any capacity, End quote. So what can we as estate planners and will writers learn from this case? Well, first we have the clear lesson about situations where a will might need to be signed by somebody other than the testator and the fact that there needs to be clear, unambiguous and positive direction from the testator for the person to sign on their behalf. It cannot be passive, it cannot be implied direction. The second thing I think we need to take from this case is the rather desperate situation of where a beneficiary has been asked to sign the will on behalf of the testator whilst this has not been taken up further following the case it did not in and of itself invalidate the will however i'm sure i don't need to point out just how precarious this would be and it should be avoided at all costs in this particular set of circumstances There was also a contentious element to the will in that the testator had six other sisters that would stand to inherit on intestacy. So we have the beneficiary signing on behalf of the testator, contentious distribution, a deathbed scenario, it's not professionally drawn up, there's no independent advice, beneficiary and daughter are present at the witnessing. All of these things, even just taken on their own, should be alarm bells that you'd want to pay attention to and should trigger you to take extra precautions, take extra attendance notes, and apply a belt-and-braces approach to your instruction-taking and your drafting. And then there's one other point that I think that this case illustrates extremely well. Just consider that the key elements of this case would all have happened in a matter of just a few seconds, or possibly about a minute. The exact moment-by-moment, who, did, what, when, were all lost once the event itself had taken place and they existed thereafter only in the memory of the three surviving people that had been there, Honora and the two nurses. We'll surely never know what actually did happen on that day but if the judge was correct, then number one, Martin tried and failed to sign the will himself and then two, Anne took the pen from him and signed in his stead but something happened in between. Whether it was just a couple of passing words, such as, do you want me to help from Anne? And then him murmuring, yes, please. That could have changed the outcome of the case. You can probably imagine that one of the nurses in attendance would observe this exchange and think, yes, that makes sense that she did that. He clearly wanted to sign it, but he couldn't. I hope this gives him some peace of mind It all seems quite rational, it all seems quite normal and justifiable in that particular moment, doesn't it? But of course, as estate planners, we're going to get the odd situation that comes up that's just a bit outside the ordinary. I had a case come into the office quite recently where we put an immediate stop to it as it looked highly contentious. When we spoke to the consultant, she explained each element that made the case problematic and each on their own was very understandable. The testator didn't want to leave anything to his son or his daughter. There was a reason given, and it was perfectly rational. The testator had his partner, who was the only beneficiary in this will, with him at the time of giving instructions. There was a reason given for that, and it was perfectly rational. The testator was in poor health. Reason given, rational. Testator wanted us to communicate only through his partner, not direct to him. There was a reason. It was rational. Plus, several other elements which, when taken all together, smacked of undue influence and possibly questionable mental capacity, great big red flags with deafening alarm bells were going off. But each thing on its own was explainable. It's only when you kind of stand back and look at the full picture and think, goodness me, this looks really bad now. So we need to be attentive to the small details. And what might seem like small and perfectly rational, justifiable outpoints, things that don't quite fit in. We need to take extended attendance notes when they happen or as soon after the event as possible, so that if in years to come anything gets questioned about the case, the events of the day, the reasons, the circumstances, then we have the answers to those questions. I think it's a productive little exercise to consider with legal cases how you would have dealt with the situation if you'd been there at that time. If you'd been called to Hammersmith Hospital on that day, how would you have dealt with it? And perhaps a more fundamental question even, would you have dealt with it or would you have walked away? I imagine most practitioners would have considered the risk involved and made your apologies. But imagine if you didn't. Imagine if you did take instructions. And you could see that there was no time available to take instructions back to your office for drafting. And you were brave enough to handwrite out a will there and then. The testator attempts to sign, but is too weak to be able to do so. Well, what then? What could you do at that point to ensure that the will has as much chance of validation as possible? Well, You now know that someone else can sign on behalf of the testator as long as there is clear direction. That should ideally not be a beneficiary. And what would your attendance notes say? You'd want those to be as detailed as possible, giving the exact sequence of events as they happened. Who said what to who? Who passed the pen from who to who? How exactly did the testator give his direction to the person to sign on his behalf? What did he say? Details, details, details. That in the end is of course what we're trying to do, isn't it? We're trying to make the wills reflect the wishes of the testator. That our client's intentions actually come to pass in the real world, in the physical world. The distributions they want actually happen. That relies on the legal document itself being validated and sometimes that requires, as in this case, additional evidence. Something to back up what happened, how did it happen and perhaps why did it happen. All right, I hope you have found this episode interesting and useful. If you did, please drop a like and subscribe to the podcast if you haven't done so already. I personally quite like looking into cases in some depth and piecing together the lessons to be learned from them it's very valuable of course to learn lessons from mistakes that we make but it is far less costly to learn from the mistakes of others i wish you all the best until the next episode and once again thank you for listening